Okay, from Psalm 13. How long, Lord? Will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I wrestle with my thoughts and day after day have sorrow in my heart? How long will my enemy triumph over me? Look on me and answer, Lord my God. Give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. And my enemy will say, I've overcome him. And my foes will rejoice when I fall. But I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise, for he has been good to me. This is the word of the Lord. If I haven't met you, I'm Neil. I'm one of the elders. Neil Smith, I'm one of the elders here. Uh, and this morning we're starting a summer series from Psalms. And while we may have a few guest preachers through the summer who do something that's not uh, picked from the Psalms, uh, it's an easy thing to do in the summer because they're self-contained and as evidenced today, people come and go and it's hard to keep a, keep a long theme going. Um, so as we start this series, I thought it would be helpful for us to look at some of the things that, at least I do, make a mistake when I look at the Psalms. And so a few thoughts as I start about what the Psalms do and what they don't do. Now here's something that Psalms do not do. They're not instructions. They may be instructive, but they're not instructions. I also used to think that the Psalms were sort of like greeting cards from God, intended to cheer me up. I think that grew out of my experience as a from a simplistic understanding I had of the way scripture worked when I was a kid. I've always been in awe of the way that scripture works, speaking into our lives. But when I grew up, maybe about five or six years old, we went to a little Plymouth Brethren church. And if you're not familiar with the PBs, it's a small holiness denomination, dispensational offshoot of the Anglican Church. The PBs are very anti-liturgy. And, and they expected that the Spirit was going to lead their morning worship. So communities that we attended, about the same size as WCF on a fuller Sunday, um, the congregation would gather, and once the appointed time came, everyone would sit with your family quietly. Very important lesson for a five-year-old kid to learn, to sit with one's family quietly. Then a man, and it was always a man because women weren't allowed to speak in the congregation, would stand and he would suggest a song or sometimes just launch into a song and everybody would join him. Or he might read a passage from scripture. Or sometimes read a passage from scripture and then tell us what it really meant for us today. This last part caught my attention. It seemed to me that then the, when this man opened his Bible that something magical had happened. If I read those words, it was confusing, and I stumbled over the King James phrasing of, the, of whatever the passage is that he was reading. But these men, in their deep baritone voices, found something in particular 
that was focused, important for that particular day. I long for a day when I might have a deep voice and be able to speak for God. And in that context, the Psalms were always comforting and cheery. The Lord is a good shepherd. Rejoice in the Lord, for he is good. The Lord watches over the righteous. There may have been other parts of scripture shared and things like sin or God's anger, but if you wanted something to ease your mind, something to comfort you, go to the Psalms. It took me 40 some years to unlearn that lesson. Many times when I needed to be cheered up, I would go to the Psalms only to find a passage like Psalm 13. I tried to be cheered up by passages like this, So I would skim read the first two parts to get to the good stuff at the end. But I trust, but I trust in your unfailing love. My heart rejoices in your salvation. I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Oh, so nice, so wonderful, and so unreal. Because I don't trust God all the time. And my heart some days isn't very rejoicing, in fact, many days. I had to realize that this isn't what the psalms are for. The entire psalm is there for a reason. Simply picking the end of the story made it into some sort of syrupy, saccharine whitewash of really what was going on in life. The psalms are God's word, but we have to take it all in. We have to sit with them, let them do some work on us. It's like going for a massage to be relaxed. You might get some relaxation, but the looseness only comes after some hard work on the muscles that are tight and the knots that are there. After the work comes the freedom, but the work itself can be painful. So that's what Psalms are not, or at least in my learning I've learned. But here are some things that Psalms, or at least one thing that the Psalms are. It helps if we see the Psalms for what they are, which is music. I obsess about music. I get an album or a song in my head, and Kendrick knows this. There's an emotional connection to the music and I can't let it go. It just runs in there all day long. I can listen to it over and over and over again. And as I do, the lyrics begin to morph and change. I hear them differently. In fact, I find myself putting my own thoughts into the music and it starts to become my story not the story of the song. I also can hear new parts of the instrumentation, new parts of the drums, new, new little something going on underneath the melody. And it draws me back wondering, what else can I learn? What else can I gain from listening to the song again? And so it goes over and over again. And this is how we need to approach the Psalms. We don't have the music, but we do have lyrics. We need to sample them and dwell with them, read them over and over. They are meditative musical musings that, like a catchy song, can draw us in, allow us to see our own stories take residence in the ancient text. So what are we to make specifically of Psalm 13? What follows are my reflections. This is where my head has been the last few weeks. And I want to be clear, I'm not trying to solve the psalm. I'm not telling everybody how to read the psalm. That's not what I'm doing this morning. I'm just giving you some of my thoughts in hopes that it might spur your imagination, might draw you in, invite you to see things fresh. 
There's another lesson I learned when I was a kid, and that still holds true if you have a printed Bible. And you open it right to the middle, you're more than likely to end up in the Psalms. And I think there's an important lesson there for us when we look at the Psalms. It's in the middle of the story. The Psalms exist in the middle between the garden and the coming kingdom. So we live in this space between the garden and the Sermon on the Mount. We always got to keep those two endpoints in mind when we come to Scripture. <clears throat> so, there's many things that we might come across in the Psalms that could be disturbing or confusing if we don't make th make keep that in mind. So as I start, I want to call attention to three parallels between the beginning of the story with Eve in the, in the garden in Genesis 3 and Psalm 13. If you recall the story, Eve is alone, and the serpent sidles up to her, and they begin a conversation. So the key thing here is she's alone. The serpent stirs her fears, and then she makes a choice. Likewise, in this psalm, we see David is alone. He's afraid, and in the end, he makes a choice. So let's walk through this in three parts. The first part, the complaint. When I first looked at this psalm, I recoiled. I didn't want to touch it. In fact, it was about two weeks ago, about two weeks after we'd heard the news of Evan's death. When I read these lines, my heart ached, and I actually broke down and cried. It felt too raw, too, raw, too close, too much grief. <clears throat> but I came back again morning after morning, reading the psalm. And then they began to work on me like a song I can't get out of my head. How long? Indeed, this suffering is unbearable. Stop it! And yet, why am I suffering? Surely there are plenty of people who suffer more than me. But comparing grief has its own trap in it. But I can't even stand my own suffering. Doubts and fears that are stirred up by a terrible death in our church family. Add to that smoke from fires, wars, constant calamities going on in the world. Stop it! Like David, we get lost in time. A moment feels like forever. God looks away for just an instant, and we lose it. Our imaginations take over, and we project a continued future where God's abstinence, abstinence is extended forever and ever. It's terrifying. And then quickly, we think it's our own fault. We assume God can't even look at us because we're so crazy in our heads. We want to somehow run over the same questions over and over and somehow get God's attention so that he will come and comfort and soothe our crazy minds. Being alone is a horrible thing, especially when you're afraid. Unlike some other psalms, there's no notation to this one that gives us the occasion for where it happened that caused David to write it. I'm going to hazard a guess. I'm going to hazard a guess that it was exactly this question, how long? I can imagine David pacing through the halls of the palace, sitting and randomly fingering his harp, all the while 
thinking, how long? His children come tumbling and bumbling in through the doors and making a clamor, and he says, how long? His generals come to him with questions and plans and, and reports, and after the fifth one, he rolls his eyes and says, how long? In the same way, I grow impatient with everything when I'm suffering. Nothing can distract me from my suffering. All I can think is how long. Can I get a break? Can I do something different? Where's all the fun? But my reflection didn't just stay there. It moved on. I realized that it isn't all melancholy. This question of how long is actually a part of God's people's story. We're told to live expectantly. We are, we are told that God is coming. <clears throat> While God may be gone for a moment, God will return. How long? We don't know. But we hope. We stay ready and we sit on the edge of our seats. How long? How long must I sing this song? When will things change? I don't know. But the message of the gospel is that things do change. And change is coming. Hang on. Hang on. Hang on for however long it takes. I wonder what it would have been like for Eve to ask this question when she's talking to the serpent. The serpent asks her, did God really say? What if she had responded, I don't know. He's not here. He's gone. Why don't we wait until he gets back and we'll ask him that question? In the end, how long might be a useful question? In, this, <clears throat> in the second part of the psalm, David shifts his attention. It isn't how long have you been absent, God? It's now. How long will my enemy triumph over me? <clears throat> I think this is David's real issue. He's looking, for, he's looking for God, but not because he misses God. He's looking for God because he needs somebody to deal with his enemy. What in your life are you afraid of? Fear is constant if you're human. In popular culture, battling our fears and overcoming them is a very common motif. All you got to do is scroll through Netflix movies and read the little blurbs. And most of them, or many of them, are built on a story of a heroine or hero, hero overcoming their fears to accomplish something. Or someone freeing themselves from fear to discover something. Or a horror story that's designed to activate your fear to the point that you get an adrenaline rush because you were able to watch through the whole thing and not leave your chair. <clears throat> and grief tends to hijack our, our fears. While I might in my private thoughts, I wouldn't share them with anybody, have hopes and dreams that I fear I can't meet. All it takes is a little bit of a setback at work, a disappointing conversation in the family, or a tragic death to bring all of those things that I'm afraid of right to the surface. It forces me to look at them. The smallest instance of grief says to my fear, it's really gonna happen. 
And this is magnified when I'm alone. Grief plus being alone equals out of control fear. And this is the recipe we see the serpent using in the garden. Playing on the fact that the woman is alone, he pokes at her fears. Fear that she's missing out. Fear that God might not really be as good as she thinks. Fear that she really isn't smart enough to discern. Unlike the cultural message around us, our job isn't to overcome our fears through the force of our will by pushing through them like they're a turnstile. Somehow, the culture tells us to act as if the fear has no power. A common refrain in movies is the kid who asks the hero, why aren't you afraid like I am? And the hero always replies, well, I am afraid. I just don't let it stop me. Popular culture makes life a struggle of power. Struggle between the power of my fear and, and my own individual power. Serpent still sides into our consciousness and asks, did God really say, are you enough? When facing our fears, we come to the edge of our strength. David imagines that he will die. Look on me and answer, Lord my God, give light to my eyes or I will sleep in death. But while he was a fighter and a warrior, he conquered giants and killed lions. He isn't leaning into his own strength. He's instead turning to God and asking God to act. If you don't do it, he says, it will not happen. David's answer is dependence, and this is why he presages David's son, the Messiah. Jesus' answer was to trust in the face of all of his fears. And I think this is actually a stronger response than when I can gin up in my own strength. You see, when I'm the answer to my fears, there is an end to the road. At some point, I lose that battle. Either through some event that breaks me, or just because of the slow decline of age that robs me of the vitality and ability to defeat my fear. But putting trust in a God who is worthy of that trust means that no matter what I bring to the table, in the end, I will be okay. This is a fundamental choice. David, having stared at his fear, hasn't avoided it, hasn't run. He chooses to trust. And that's the third part. But I will trust, he declares. He declares that God's love is unfailing, and in that he finds joy. I know for me, I long thought that joy and grief couldn't occupy the same space. They were opposites. That's not what David says is the case. While he is still afraid and still alone, his trust leads him to see that he's loved. And that love is unfailing. His fear is that his enemy would triumph, and in the end, that would be all. But God's unfailing love means that there is no end but to be loved. No matter where we fail, No matter how weak we appear in our own eyes, 
we can rest in God's love. We often talk about Jesus as the example of our faith. And this is the core of it. He was the first human who fully believed that the end of the story was to be enfolded in God's love. But for David and for us, this is not simply hoping. David says it this way, I will sing the Lord's praise for he has been good to me. Well, David spent some long time wondering how long and he meditated on his fears. He ultimately spent time pondering what God has done for him. The palace, the killing of giants and lions, the family, the battlefield victories, all that he knows are gifts from God. He just has to open his eyes and look. And he sees that he's never been truly alone. Even before Samuel chose him, God did. For God has been good to me. We sing praises because God has been good to us. Like even the garden, David is making a choice. But his choice is very different. Rather than trusting in God's <clears throat> rather than not trusting, sorry, rather than not trusting in God's goodness, he chooses to focus on God's goodness. And that leads to a very different outcome. Eve's choice came at a huge cost to them and to us. We don't know the context for this song, but at the very least, we can say that his choice led him to praise and sing, not run and hide in shame. So what can we take away from these reflections? I just have a couple of thoughts. First, by reading the whole psalm, seeing the work that David does, not skipping to just the good parts, we have a model for the work that we can do in our own times of feeling sad, alone, and in grief. This is a prayer of lament. It takes us through the journey from pain to a choice that opens the door to praise. Second, for me, I came across the idea that Jesus is reframing so much of this story, so much of the way we experience it. In my reflecting on this psalm, I began actually to read the Lord's Prayer a little bit differently. I saw it in three sections that mirror the three sections of the psalm. The first part, expressing my longing for God's presence. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I don't want to be alone anymore. Next, by focusing on simple provision, I'm looking at the opposite of fear. Give us today our daily bread and forgive us our debts as we've also forgiven our debtors. And then it gives voice to the, to the choice to be humble and to trust. And lead us not to temptation, but deliver us from the evil one. It's not an exact fit, but I do see something of a pattern at play. And I find this pattern pointing me to something that's fresh, hopeful, useful. God answers my cry of how long with a picture of a kingdom that's on earth. I can see it when I focus on the simple things. And when I humble myself to receive, 
his deliverance. That's the way it works when we don't just look for the good words, but let the scripture do its work on us. I'm curious where your meditation on the Psalms might lead you this summer. I hope your imagination is awakened and you can let the music of these ancient texts dig into your heart and your mind.